happy holidays, and welcome to Certain Point of Yule. Now is the season of our Christmas content, and while we usually watch new movies so that we can let you know if they're worth your time, today we have a special episode. I'm Frankie. I'm John. And today we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life, which John had never seen before last night. Which is why we're doing this special episode to finally get me caught up on what is now my favorite Christmas movie of all time. (laughs) I'm sorry, Kurt Russell. Please still love me. (laughs) I think Kurt Russell will forgive you. It is a classic. It's so good. Well, here's some details about It's a Wonderful Life in case you're not aware. It was released on January 7th in 1947. It's currently streaming on Amazon Prime Video, which is how we watched it last night. It stars James Stewart as the iconic George Bailey, Donna Reed as Mary Hatch, Lionel Barrymore as Mr. Potter. The screenplay was written and directed by Frank Capra. John, would you like to explain the premise? Absolutely. So George Bailey, a man with dreams of adventure and exploring, ends up stuck in his hometown when he devotes his life to the care of its people like his father before him. Misfortune after misfortune strikes until it becomes too much, and George seriously considers ending his life believing those he loves would be better off without him. Clarence, an angel, arrives to show George just how much worse it'd be if George hadn't been there at all. We're all familiar with the overall plot of this movie. It's been parodied, it's been referenced, it's always playing in the background of some Christmas movie somewhere. All of the references that I see in basically everything ever makes sense. Like, Futurama had an episode with, like, the blinking star systems as, like, deities. Like, I thought it was just, like, a cute thing that Futurama did. I didn't know. Now I know. Now he knows. Let's talk about the good. Everything? (laughs) Not everything. There are a couple of things that weren't so great, and we know it. that's true. That's true. But, like, overall, the movie was just... It was good. It was a well-made movie. I wish we would have seen the non-colorized version, but that being said, like, it was still... That's not a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination like they colorized it very well but it was just it was a cute wholesome movie overall like there was its you know intended drama and there was like bad stuff that happened throughout it but the movie was just about like george bailey and like his his willingness to self-sacrifice his own dreams to take care of the people of his community and just how much they love george bailey for what he's done for them and it's just it's so beautiful and pure and i love it george bailey is a genuinely good and pure and wholesome person yeah and it's just like uh, i have so many feelings about this movie it's going to be difficult to articulate throughout this episode but i will do my best well let's focus in on some specific things what specific things did you like for example i thought it was really neat how the uh, angels are represented by the night sky by the cosmos we see little nebulas as joseph and who else was it oh god i don't remember the other one michael i think it was probably and clarence was a little star who came onto screen i really liked that i thought it was cute and it also kind of removed it from the concept of religion for me yeah because there was a lot of praying throughout this movie and like that's fine it's, it was made in the 40s like i i get it like you were made literally right after world war Two ended which explains how heavily this centers around like world war Two for a good part of the movie but like yeah it was just like they were stars like and I, I think that's like an old religious trope. Yeah. But you can very easily just take a step to the left and just like the stars are looking out for us. And that's nice. I like that. Yeah. I have my own personal problems with religious representation, as we know from 
our discussion of Christmas Chronicles 2. Yep. But because of the way they portrayed the angels, it made it easier for me to experience this movie because it wasn't ham-fisted with the iconography. Yeah. I mean, the Bailey family was religious, and so they prayed when things went bad. But, like, the angel was... Like, Clarence was just some old dude when yeah. we finally see him on scene, on screen. And when they were up in the night sky, they were just two nebulas and a star that just zips across the sky to be like, Boss, it's been 200 years. When am I going to get... Also, I think that the voice for Clarence in the star form was different than the voice for Clarence uh, when he was a real person. I don't think it was. I, I might just be misremembering because it was like two hours between <laughs> those two scenes. It's a Wonderful Life. I love you, but you are a long movie. It is a long movie, and that's because we spend like an hour and a half getting to know George Bailey, and I I think that's one of the best things about this movie because <sighs> if the focus of the movie had only been here's how terrible things would have been if you weren't here we wouldn't have any context for example we know how dynamic and amazing mary hatch is played by donna reed we know how george didn't really get the things that he wanted out of life when he was a young man but he has a family that he loves he has a house that his wife works so hard on every day he has a community that adores him he follows in his father's footsteps and keeps his father's dream alive in that way and as the movie proclaims at the end remember no man is a failure who has friends that's a really important lesson to take away it's not about god it's not about your faith in a higher power. It's about your faith in yourself and the people around you. Yeah. No, this is very much this is a this is a very uh left wing movie. <laughs> like <laughs> at is. one point George Bailey just goes off on Mr. Potter and rants about like him being a leech as a landlord. But that's not what I want to discuss right now because in the same scene as what you're talking about, one of the best scenes in this movie, I think, was um, Harry coming back from the war tries, flies home in a blizzard, gets brought back by uh, Bert, their their town constable or or whatever his specific designation. The one cop. The one <laughs> the one cop and the only good cop in all of media ever, save for Brooklyn Nine Nine. And Harry like walks up and he somehow gets boo a glass of booze from somewhere. Like the war's just over. We're still rationing, Harry. God. Um, but like he, he toasts to his brother and he says to, to George Bailey, the richest man in town and putting aside the fact that everyone in town just came over and just gave George a whole bunch of money. Like that's not why George Bailey is the richest man in town. He's rich because he has the love and appreciation of his neighbors for all the good that he does because like they turned out for him. They really do. And they're all poor anyway. So like, it's not like they're, they're he's like living in a gated community of rich people who are just like, oh yeah, let me write you a check. This movie is the original GoFundMe. It really, really is. I would like to talk about how amazing Mary Hatch is and how she is low-key a witch. Yo, absolutely. What she does with that house is so good. Like, she's a kitchen witch. There is a scene where George and Mary are welcoming an Italian family to their very own 
own house that they built for this family through the building and loan. And during this time frame, Italian families were also experiencing a lot of marginalization and oppression. Yeah, this would have been like the late 20s, early 30s when that scene was happening. Yeah. Maybe the late 30s uh, by the time it, it all shook out. But like, yeah, that was not a great time for Italian Americans. And I don't want to equate their experience to what people of color have always experienced because now being Italian... Yeah, it's nothing. They've... <laughs> They have assimilated into the greater America. They've assimilated super well that they're like in the higher echelon. Yeah, but like America does have a long history of basically anytime someone new comes in, basically, right, we get yeah. a new kid in school, we have to like, you know, steal his lunch money. And we, we have, have to, to bully like them for a couple of generations. Kick dirt in his face until, you know, they become useful to us. And then, okay, fine, you're white now. Yay. Basically. And also, the man who portrays Mr. Martini is darker in complexion than the other people in the movie. Yes. I mean, I'm sure they're just going for, like, more of a Mediterranean, yeah. like, very olive-skinned, tan vibe, but it doesn't always show up in, like, it's not the best colorization. Yeah. But also probably didn't show up super well in, like... I'm just wondering if that Black is also white. a preconceived mm -mm. bias. Mm, it's possible. But that being said, during this scene where George and Mary are welcoming the Martini family to their home with their like three dogs and their goat. I love this family so much. Yeah. Mary offers them a loaf of bread so that the house may never go hungry. Salt so that way their lives will always have flavor. And George interrupts the ritual to grab the wine. <laughs> but this is like a kitchen witch ritual. Yeah. She's putting a blessing on their home. Like, that's not a Christian thing at all. No, that's a very old, old rite of hospitality. Like, bread and salt were, like, it used to be a thing that you would give people when they came into, like, that's how you got, like, guest rights and why, how, like, you, you earned the hospital or, like, you were guaranteed the hospitality of a family was you would share of their bread and salt and that sort of bound you together for the length of your stay and, like... No, Mary cast a spell on them. She cast <laughs> a ward of protection around their house with this ancient pagan ritual. I love Mary Hatch so much. Mary Hatch is <laughs> amazing. Uh, and I need to talk about just this old... She buys a witch house. She does. She takes this old, broken down right house in their community that's been around forever and she one like uses it to throw the most romantic dinner ever cooking rotisserie chickens with a turntable marry you brilliant woman she's so smart but like oh god i love that she acquires this house because first of all it's the house that she and george admire on their first quote date it's not really a date it's they were at the dance together and he walked her home and they stopped in front of this house to throw stones and make wishes and mary's wish comes true because she's a witch first of all second of all this house is definitely haunted so mary is the only person who can tame this house but also to go back to like mary being a witch and i think that this might wind up being like half of our episode is going to be mary as a witch in one of the first scenes we get with mary when george is in the druggist store which by the way i love the fact that they still call it a druggist store because like that's such an old-timey thing and i know this was made in the 40s and it was probably appropriate for then but it's delightful and i love it but like Mary leans in over the counter and like whispers in George's ear, George Bailey, I'm going to love you for the for like until the day until I the die. day I die. And like if you're going to sit there and tell me that Mary did not just cast a spell of eternal love over her and George, not on George, because like Mary's not going to take away George's agency in that. But like she said, I'm going to love you until the day I die. And she did. 
because she's a witch. I love her. She's so dynamic. She's so fierce. She's brilliant. I love that ever since she was eight years old, before she was eight years old, she knew exactly what she wanted from life and she went out and she she got it. Another great thing that we have to talk about. We're going to now leave behind the Mary train <laughs> because otherwise we'll be here forever. But I just love Mary Hatch so much. Uh, I think it's time to talk about one of the most iconic scenes in It's a Wonderful Life that has been parodied in so many things. Parodied. <laughs> um, from everything up to and including the adventure zone, the uh, the pool scene in the in the dance where the floor opens up and then like, oh, there's a pool underneath and there's the button right behind you. And we're going to like dump all these people in the drink there, uh, Lenny. And then they they do that. And then they all just like George and, and Mary are just dancing back and forth. And they don't know that the floor is opening and everyone's just like, oh, my God, there's so look at their spatial awareness. And then everyone just jumps into the pool when like they can't avoid it anymore and it's just it's cute and it's wholesome because they fall in the pool and then they just start dancing again george is trying so hard to keep dancing and mary's dying from laughter i love it it's so good and it's why their relationship works too because george tries so hard to keep the fun going and mary is 1000 percent there for it yeah like george is a serious man who deals with serious issues like the the building and loan and like his his strife with Potter throughout the movie, but he's so willing and and dead set on just being silly when the moment calls for it. It's it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, I also just love that old dude at the end of that scene who's just like, "What are you doing? Get out of there!" And then immediately at the second, no hesitation, the second after he's done with that, he's just like, "You know what? Whatever!" And then just jumps in himself. The seventy oh, well. year old man. You know what? I can't stop him. Bottoms up. Not bottoms up. Geronimo. What am I doing? It's so good. That was, uh, I guess, their principal or something. He knew George from when George was Mr. Pritchard. Yeah. I think was his name. I think you're right. Yes. Yeah. George Bailey, who perpetually looks like he's 50 years old, even when he's 21. Anything else very specific that you want to talk about? In On the good side of things. Because I only have one thing on the I didn't like side. I don't know the thing that you're talking about. I think that the last thing, and this is just a small thing, because... Because, like, this is something that I wish I knew when I was a kid. Them using shovels as sleds. <laughs> like, my butt is now too big to do that. But, like, that's so clever. Oh, my God. I mean, when were sleds really brought around for kids? Well, when did Citizen Kane come out? Because, right, Rosebud was, was the name of his sled. And, like, right. our modern conceptualization of, like, toboggan-esque, like, sleds is, you know, a bit more recent, but, like, the, the metal rail, like, flexible flyer kind of deals, I think those are pretty old. I feel like that's a rich kid thing, though. I'm gonna... Do you have any, any more good things while I try and... Other good things. The relationship between Bert and Ernie, their friendship, so good. Chef kiss. Ernie is the uh, taxi driver who appears and gives everyone rides for free, apparently. I never see anyone giving Ernie money. I just love this socialist town. So, Nobody pays for anything. Ooh, I have something else to talk so about. So the flexible flyer sled was invented by Samuel Leeds Allen sometime between 1841 and 1918, which was the man's life. They don't give me the exact date. So it would have been around when, because Harry would have died in 1919 mm -hmm. when the Treaty of Versailles was signed. So they, they would have had access to like actual sleds, but also you're right. It is a poor town. So they might not have also like there are more shovels than there are sleds. It's yeah. easier to buy a shovel. What was the last thing that you were going to? I want to talk about Violet Bick. Oh, Yes. 
Violet Bick, who is the blonde, I'm hot and I know it, woman of Bedford Falls. She's definitely, like, not in love with George Bailey. I think she sees him as a challenge, and she never wins this challenge. But aren't we all a little bit in love with George Bailey? (laughs) Because I am. I know you are. I love Violet, though, because... Like Mary, she is a person who knows what she wants and sets out to go get it. She is a person who is aware of how beautiful she is, and that's not a flaw. I think it's perfectly fine to know that you're beautiful. I think Violet represents a type of femininity that often gets portrayed as selfish, as flawed, as vapid, vapid, something that we should look down on. But I think Violet is brilliant and beautiful and so funny. (laughs) When George asks her out on a date and he tells her all the things he wants to do, she's just like, no, no, thank you. I know my limits. And it is not walking up to the mountains at what is it nine o'clock at night no you're crazy a 10 mile walk by the way at which point they would remove their shoes and feel the grass in their toes and stare lovingly up at the stars and it's like george you hopeless romantic dunderhead this is a delightful date but (laughs) look at violet for two seconds yeah you should instead drive her somewhere so you can passionately make out. Because that's all she really wants. That's fair. This is the 1940s. Make out point is a cultural touchstone that we should all be aware of from anything that happened during this era. I just appreciate that Violet is aware of the things she wants in life. Yes. And also towards the end of the movie when they try to set up this sordid scandal for people who don't know the truth that George is giving money to his mistress, Violet. It's really that Violet wants to get out of town and George understands that desire and he wants to help her because he's always like had a fondness for her. They've been friends for how many years? Also, George's fondest dream for most of his young life was to go out and explore, like go out to the Yukon or like go just go like he wants to find the the final frontier and he wants to just be out there on the wild edge of things and just discover. And he never gets to do that. And someone like wanting to chase that dream and get out was like, obviously he's going to facilitate that dream the best he can because George Bailey is a good person. I just wish I knew what happened to Violet to make her feel so depressed and to have her crying in George's office about how she needs to get out of this town. For a while, I thought maybe she got in trouble and I thought maybe she was pregnant and she needed to get out so as to save herself the embarrassment. But she then decides to stay. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that would still be the case. That's what I thought also. And I think that we can easily justify Violet's desire to stay because it's it's George Bailey. Like no matter what your problem is, someone like goes running down the street saying George Bailey needs help. And like we're, everyone turns around. Let's get in to the things we didn't like so much because yes. we have spent more time than usual on the things we did like. Well, there are so many things and it is a long movie. Sorry, I'm looking at this list of like disturbing things about her so wonderful life. Yeah. To like, see if anything I feel is valid. Yeah. Because a lot of these just like are, are completely ignoring like the time in which these things happened. Like George Bailey having a part-time job at the age of 12. Like, yeah, there weren't really great child labor laws back immediately in the Great Depression, basically. 
Also, like, the racism. There is some racism, but yeah. this movie was made in the early 40s. Yeah. I don't like it, but yeah, it's not, okay. Yeah, we're not going to excuse the racism in It's a Wonderful Life, but it is a product of its time, and there's nothing that we can do about that. So the main thing that I didn't like about It's a Wonderful Life is how, not how quickly, but how suddenly George turns to violence. He physically shakes Mary on multiple occasions. And yes, you can say that this is a product of the time. You can say that men during this time frame were not in touch with their emotions. They were not able to communicate as effectively as many men today can. And that kind of violence, that kind of shock is all they really know in order to express their frustration. That doesn't mean that I have to enjoy watching it. Yeah, no, it's those are some deeply uncomfortable moments uh, when like George is, is getting very aggressive and like throwing things around his house and like shaking his wife before she was his wife um and i think i don't even think that was necessarily like a bad scene thing because like he's telling her that like he has no intention of ever getting married and like he wants to go off and explore the world and do the things that he wants to do and then the next scene they're, they're getting married so like it wasn't like a bad like everything is falling apart scene it was just george passionately trying to deny his love for this woman and he gets very caught up in it and he gets unnecessarily physically aggressive and then they're married yeah which is i feel common for men during this time frame they just they don't know how to communicate so their rage expresses itself through physical action and i i don't yeah. like it. it makes me uncomfortable it makes me feel <clears throat> unsafe i also didn't like when george was beaten as a kid by mr gower yes i was slightly less uncomfortable with that scene despite my tr struggles with child abuse because it carried george's story along like it was part of george's story and it yes. was important for us to see but still like any type of physical violence is just unnecessary yeah unnecessary no the other thing that i didn't like is they do mary hatch dirty in the this is your life if you're not around yes they bit. turn her into like the classic plain jane like gray with like the the conservative hat she's like, only like in her early she's not even in her early 30s they give no, her, she is she's in they, her they give her glasses in the in the alternate timeline which is like why first would of she all, need glasses first of all rude okay <laughs> as two glasses wearing people doing this podcast it doesn't make us boring it makes us beautiful Glasses weren't as cute back then, though. I mean, like, not, for, have, not for women. We have glasses. Because men generally tend to have the classic, like, horn rim, like, vaguely aviator shape. And, like, that's a, that's a good look. It's it's coming back into, into vogue. But, like, nah. That being said, this implies that Mary's dynamic personality relies entirely on George. It does. And... You can make that argument that if George hadn't been around when she was a kid, she wouldn't have anyone to inspire her. But I think it does her character dirty. Like, Mary yeah. is a brilliant person in her own right. And I think she would have gotten out of Bedford Falls if there wasn't someone like George to inspire her to stay. I think what makes me the most uncomfortable about that part isn't um, necessarily the depiction of Mary, although that is definitely problematic. The thing that annoys me most about it is they're in the uh, cemetery and George has found his brother's tombstone because Harry died when he was eight because George wasn't around to save him from drowning. It's weird to think that none of their other friends would have saved Harry from drowning, but whatever. 
Um, and then like he turns to Clarence and he asks him like, where's my wife? And Clarence is like, oh, you don't want me to tell you that. It's like, where's my wife? And it's like, is it, you don't want me to tell you that like, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> and then he shoves Clarence to the ground and he's just like, she's an old maid. She never got married. It's like, Cl- like that's the worst thing that could happen yeah, to a like, person. Like, come on. Like, I, I, again, like I get it. it's the forties and y'all were dumb, but like, come on. Mary is 34. I am 32. Like, if I hadn't married John, I would still be okay. Yeah. I'd still be doing pretty well. Yeah, no, your 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 value to society is in no way tied to your marital status. Um, and I know that we've moved significantly past that in 2020, but that's, that mindset still pervades a lot of cultural yeah. norms and mores. And y'all need to get over yourselves and let people not get married and not have kids and do what they want with their lives. And the other final criticism that we have, we've talked about it a little bit, is the inherent racism in the film. Annie is the one of two characters of color on screen and the only character of color who has lines. The other character of color, if you're struggling to remember, was the porter at the train station. Mm, I yes. just noticed him on stream. I was like, oh, look, a person of color. That isn't Annie. Yep. <laughs> that is why I remember him. And Annie, uh, Annie is a great character and I love her. And I feel like, I feel like this movie forgets that people of color exist, except Annie. Like, yeah. Yeah. And like, part of it is just because Hollywood didn't have a large, like, amount of black actors back in the 1940s. It was still much more of like an all boys, all white club than it is today. And it's, it's still like, not it's great. It's still bad today. <laughs> the Academy, I'm looking at you. Um... There was a thing that I remembered that I wanted to uh, point out um, back on the good side of things. And then I just forgot it as we were talking about Annie. Maybe I'll remember it before we wrap up. But um... Also, something else that I didn't like about their treatment of Annie is that when Harry is trying to get the pies from Annie, he like chases after her and says, Annie, I'm in love with you, which harkens to actually a really unfortunate thing that happened to women of color who are in service to white families is that they were vulnerable. Yes. That kind of like joking, oh, boys will be boys action of Harry was often a very more serious, more violent action. There were a lot of very unfortunate power dynamics throughout the entire history of, um, just black presence in the United States. Um, and it's like, it, it, it still carries through in a lot of ways to today. And it was very prevalent back in the 1940s. And it's kind of an unfortunate scene. I remembered the thing that I want to talk about. And this is kind of a weird. Hold on to it. Harry also sexually harassed Annie. Continue. Yes. Uh, Harry, do better. You're supposed to be the golden boy of town. Um, it, the suitcases. Oh, I love the suitcases. So Harry comes back from four years at college and he comes back with his wife, Ruth. And um, like George and Uncle Billy are just like shocked, 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 shocked. Oh my God, what am I doing? Congratulations. Now we're suddenly so happy, which uh, completely understandable reaction when your brother comes home and is suddenly married at the ripe old age of like 21. But they all start to walk away. Like Ruth and Uncle Billy start to walk away and uh, Harry and George start talking about this job that Harry has been offered by Ruth's dad because Harry was supposed to take back over the building and loan when he got back from college. And they've left the suitcases behind 
behind as they start to walk away. And, you know, this is a type of thing that might just happen in modern TV and we would just ignore it. And then the suitcases would just, they'd have been fine and no one would have bothered about it. But they actually take the time in this movie to pause and for Harry to say, oh, wait, we left the bags and then go back to get them. Which gives George an opportunity to move away from Harry and towards Ruth to get some information without Harry's ear on him. Yes, uh, but I also just I like the attention to detail that this movie uh, paid to its many moving parts. Um, and I think just an honorable mention on the side of bad things is just Mr. Potter and everything about him. Mr. Potter is a lich. Mr. Potter is one of the liches from uh, Wonderland in the Adventure Zone. He feeds off of people's suffering. Uh, and I don't like to wish ill on people, but um, I do on Mr. Potter. He sucks. Hey, Jingle Bells. He sucks is not a curse. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. I will not be jingle belling that. Okay. I did not cuss anyone. Anyway, that being said, it's time for the overall rating, a completely arbitrary system that we come up with that we just follow our hearts. John, how many tree toppers do you give It's a Wonderful Life? I'm going to give it uh, 4.75 out of 5. Um, it is very close to being an absolutely perfect Christmas movie, but as we mentioned, on the bad side of things, there are enough like problematic aspects uh, about it that I cannot give it a perfect score. Uh, I don't take away as many points about it as I would have in a modern film because it was a product of its time and culturally we just we we were worse back in the 1940s than we are today and that's not an excuse it's just a recognition that American society has gotten although it might not look it at least a little bit better. So 4.75 out of 5. I give it a 4.5 because I can't get over how badly they did my girl, Mary Hatch. That's entirely fair. Love <clears throat> Mary Hatch so much. She deserved better in the alternate timeline. I would have hated my name so much less. Yeah. If it had been like, you were named for Mary Hatch. Like, really? Mary Hatch, who became, I think she was the town librarian. Yeah. Um, I, in the alternate timeline, which is an awesome and amazing job. I just, you did my girl dirty. Yeah. Okay. That was John Watch's It's a Wonderful Life for the first time. He definitely cried. I definitely, listen, I, anyone who doesn't cry in the last scene where everyone's giving money to George Bailey because Mary just ran out into the street and is like, George Bailey needs help. And every single person in town came in to the building and loan to give George the the all whatever just petty cash they had on hand so that he wouldn't go to jail. And it says if you don't cry during that scene, you have no soul. Alright? I don't want to know you. It's true. My mom tried to tell me, tell your husband that men don't cry during that movie. That's not true. I would rather have a husband who is in touch with his emotions, the one that violently shakes me when he gets overly uh, stimulated and completely overloaded with sensory input. I violently shake myself when I get overloaded <laughs> with sensory input. That's fine. What you do to yourself is your business. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I bounce my leg, but okay. It's getting a little blue here. Thank you for joining us for this limited run of Certain Point of Yule. Certain Point of Yule is a Certain Point of View production. Head over to CertainPOV.com to find a link to our Discord and join in the conversation. I'm Frankie. I'm John. Happy holidays. We love you. Goodbye.
CPOV. CertainPOV.com.